some, some preachers, they can't preach on an empty stomach, they say. They have to have a full belly. And, and I actually am the opposite. I have to be empty and kind of clear-headed. The only thing I got in my system is coffee, which is why you see me doing this a little bit. It's half Holy Spirit, half uh, whatever it is Bill puts in that coffee back there, but uh, it's all appreciated. Uh, well, welcome, especially to those of you that are visiting perhaps for the first time, a special welcome uh, to you. Um, if that is you, uh, please don't leave without uh, allowing me to, to shake your hand and get to know you a little bit after the service. I would really love the opportunity to do that. There's a lot of people pass through the doors, and uh, uh, so sometimes my attention is divided, but I, I know, I get it too. I, I, uh, but sometimes my attention is divided. I never mean to miss anybody, and so I'd be happy to shake your hand, get to know you a little bit, and welcome you uh, to Ignite Christian Church. Um, some of you probably this morning are wondering if that's a, a literal Ignite Christian Church because you came in and you saw the sidewalks all burned up in the parking lot. That was me. <laughs> I didn't know. I thought it was just, I didn't think it was just a name. I thought we wanted to get into that, literally. Um, no, we were, doing some, we were doing some work on the parking lot yesterday and uh, we had some uh, poor Rick Dobsick. We'd whacked the whole thing, had it all cleared out, we let, it, let the grass grow back. Uh, so we're trying to torch some of that stuff. But it's not literally, there's no arson going on at, at, at Ignite where that was planned. I will tell you this. What's that? Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you this, that I can't really recommend a spray bottle with gas um, and already lit flames. It makes for a lot of fun, but it's also kind of scary, especially when the tip of your sprayer gets caught on fire. You got to, and that did happen yesterday, so. Your, your, pastor's, your pastor's on fire, uh, sometimes literally. Um, I appreciate you all indulging the jokes this morning. I, I do have a, a, a fire in my gut this morning. Um, are the doors locked? Because we're going we're gonna to talk about hypocrisy. Uh, and so I know Annie's got her shin guards on, and, um, and uh, oh, she did. She's ready for it. She's ready for it. Um, but we are going to jump back into our study uh, verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And so I, I hope you're enjoying our time in that book. Uh, we've said before, probably the earliest of Paul's epistles or letters to the churches of Galatia. We're uncertain. Were those the churches in the north, the churches in the south? We're not uh, really certain. I lean towards the southern churches, and that's uh, part of the early uh, writing theory. Uh, we believe that this is probably his earliest letter. But uh, the occasion for his writing is that the gospel itself was under attack. His apostleship was under attack as well. But uh, Paul, he, he defends his apostleship. He says, look, I have every right to be here as any of these Jerusalem apostles because God himself anointed me to do this. Um, but he doesn't spend a lot of time on him. He spends a lot more time on the gospel. Actually, the rest of the letter is going to kind of flesh that out for us. Um, the problem is that the gospel is being substituted for some, uh, some inferior version of it, some uh, gospel plus, some Jesus plus law version of the gospel, which is no gospel at all. The gospel in Greek means the good news, literally the good news. What was good about that is that for once, we didn't have to try to work our way into a righteous uh, position. And Jesus did all the work. It is finished. When he said it is finished, he meant it. Amen. All the work was done on your behalf. You didn't have to do any of it. And so what an insult then to look at that finished work and look at Jesus hanging on that cross, beaten and broken. He says it is finished. He says, well, but I got something to add to it. What an insult to the Almighty that we could add anything to it. 
And so like Paul, you get incensed about the idea that somebody would minimize what Christ did on the cross by adding to it saying, yeah, but you have to have Jesus, you have to have faith in Jesus plus a little circumcision on the side. Or plus a little ritual on the side. Plus some following the law on the side. It's an insult to Jesus. And so this gospel is under attack. The gospel with which Paul planted these churches. The title of the message this morning is Paul Crashes Peter's Masquerade Party. It's a long one. I was thinking on it way longer than I should have. Um, and I like you, you probably already know this about me. I like alliteration, so I'll, I'll try to find ways to alliterate everything uh, in there. But uh, I, I hope it gets the message across. Um, I want to say this, that uh, this message is particularly for seasoned believers. Uh, if you count your fellowship, your relationship with Jesus in decades, I'm talking to you this morning. It's not that this message is not for uh, new Christians. I hope you can gain some insights from it as well. Uh, but I'm speaking to those of us in, uh, that measure our faithfulness to Christ, hopefully in decades. Um, those of us who are longer in the tooth in our faith in Jesus. Especially leaders. Uh, and a special uh, side note on that. You know, we have uh, before us the, the opportunity and the, the privilege and the responsibility to, in the coming months, look at who's, uh, who's equipped and who's ready to stand up and lead this church with me to put together a board of elders. And if you're thinking right now in your heart and your mind, I'd like to do that. You desire what Paul says is a good thing. To desire the office of bishop or overseer or elder is a good thing, but it comes at a price. And so I'd ask you to pay special attention to the message today. Our text, if you want to turn there, is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through that book. In typical fashion, I'll read through the text, and then we'll uh, go ahead and expound a little bit. I'm going to try to keep my thoughts somewhat short, because I want to save some time for uh, communion at the end. I, um, I apologize to you. We're supposed to have that on the first of every month, and uh, I failed to remember to do so this month, and uh, uh, Chris was good enough to remind me. Where's he at? You guys switch seats, it makes it hard for me to point you out. Don't do that to me. It's hard enough up here, but uh, without people playing musical chairs. But, um, but Chris was good enough to point out to me that we hadn't done it. He asked me last night in a text if we could go ahead and do that. I thought that was, uh, it was a good, good on him to remind me. And so we'll be saving some time for that um, at the end of the service. But our text, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Before we dive into our thoughts on that text, let's go ahead and open a word of prayer. Lord and Father, I thank you for your presence with us here this morning. This wouldn't be worth doing if it it wasn't for your presence. And so, Father, I ask your spirit to be mighty among us, to be all the things that I can't, that I'm not. 
where I fall short. Lord, bridge the gap, miraculously even, between my lips and their ears, Lord. Might something beautiful happen and might, might hearts be drawn closer to you as a result of being here this morning. Might, as a result of us being here, Lord, we inch closer and closer and closer to lives that are just totally committed to building your kingdom. Might we be content to see you high and lifted up and to have your way in our lives. We pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. All right, so jumping back in, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now, Cephas is the Aramaic version of Peter's name. Uh, in the Greek, it's Petra. So same thing, it means rock. Uh, so it's just Paul. I don't know why he went with the Aramaic. He chose to use the Aramaic in this, but uh, he calls him Cephas. Uh, so when Cephas came to Antioch, now Antioch is an important place because it was a very mixed uh, con- congregation there. Uh, a lot of Gentiles. In fact, if you, may, you may remember from the book of Acts that Antioch is a place where Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. So uh, an important city, an important kind of mixed, uh, blended congregation, a place where you can imagine it would be easy for them to sort of uh, lay aside some of those more wooden and rigid traditions because they have that mixed group. And that's what we had there. We had people fellowshipping together even at the table, even over meals. This was important because table fellowship was the litmus test for determining whether you were a serious Jew or not. If you were very serious, you would not sit down to a meal with a Gentile. It would defile you. It was an unclean thing. And if you recall, Paul is incensed about them changing the gospel because the gospel is supposed to bring about one true family in Christ. There is no Jew, no Greek. There is no male, no female, no bond, no free. All are one in Christ Jesus. And so he says, what, what we've done, what we've communicated to you in the gospel, you're now trying to undo. But in the table fellowship, that was a litmus test for the very serious Jew. If you were very serious about the traditions of your fathers, you would not sit down to a meal with the Gentiles. Uh, but in Antioch, this was not the case. They embraced even table fellowship with Gentiles. Really, it was an ideal location. The church was thriving there. And things were being done rightly. One group. One body, one faith. Paul opposed him to his face. He again asserts his autonomy, his independence, his equal rank and, and stature among the, gen, the, among, among the apostles. Remember, he, had, he defended his apostleship early, and he's going to give us, leave us hints and clues that he's still asserting that authority, that, that uh, equality with the other apostles. You'd have to be able to oppose somebody like Peter. Remember when Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it? Some big words to say to somebody, put that in their hands. And then Peter, so often a hero of the faith, but other times, looks more like us. At least me. (laughs) Some of you are struggling with that. Uh, We all struggle. Where he is weak, we are strong. Or he, where we are weak, he is strong. So Paul asserts his autonomy, his independence, his equal rank, and he offers a direct challenge. Now, last week we talked about, we took a break from Galatians. We talked about apostasy, uh, those that fall away from the faith. And I said it's important that we issue or that we, that we respond to things like apostasy with, with direct confrontation. 
If you have a friend who is once in the faith, following Jesus, following hard after Jesus, and then says, you know, I think I have some new ideas about some things. I think I'm going to walk away, stray a little bit from the narrow path. And you pat them on the back and say, you do you. You take care of number one. The reason we can't do that is because we are helping them off the straight and narrow path that leads to life and onto the broad and wide path that leads to destruction. And so we can't waffle when it comes to that sort of thing. Nor, I think, can we waffle when confronting something like uh, degrading of the gospel. So here in Paul, there's no subtlety, there's no passive aggressiveness, there's no beating around the bush that we're so good at in the church today. Aren't we? I've got something hard to say to you, but instead of saying it, I'm going to beat around the bush and hope you just get it. Why wouldn't I, in Christian truth and honesty and love for you, just tell you, I think the thing that you're doing is destructive to your life. I love you enough to tell you that. You all are an easy bunch to love. I don't take that for granted. But part of love is telling the truth, even when it's hard. Speaking even when your voice shakes, as I've heard it said. said. There's no subtlety, no passive aggressiveness, no beating around the bush with Paul. One of my favorite quotes by William Barclay, you probably have heard that name a number of times from me. You'll hear the same names. I'm very influenced by a number of scholars, but uh, a few in particular that I really just uh, have come to love. But William Barclay said this in his autobiography. He said, it has been said and truly that only two people can and will tell you the truth. An enemy who hates you bitterly and a friend who loves you dearly. Those are two people that tell it to you straight and everyone else is shades of gray. Telling you what you want to hear. Telling you what you think they can, they can say to you to manipulate you into believing a certain thing or acting a certain way. We as Christians cannot operate in that gray. We have to be upfront and honest and transparent and direct with each other. Even when it's hard. Maybe I'd say even especially when it's hard. Because then the stakes are higher. One day I'll preach a message on this passage. I've mentioned it a number of times in the last several weeks. But Matthew chapter 18 deals with how we deal with each other when we find each other in sin. With the goal, of course, of restoring that person to fellowship with the person and ultimately with God. Because you love them so much, you can't possibly bear the thought of leaving them to languish in their licentiousness or their, their departing from God. Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is not a mere difference of opinion. Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter was wrong. He stood condemned. Regardless of whether or not anyone called him on it. Isn't it difficult sometimes those in leadership positions, you, you see what they're doing and you know in your heart of hearts it's wrong. The way they're acting is, is not in accordance with Scripture. They say, but they're in charge. They're the one leading this thing. They need to hear from you in a loving way, in a respectful way, but they need to hear from you. How many leaders didn't get that? And we watched the ultimate fall from grace. I'm thankful for a number of men that I, I, I've come to know already in my short time here that are not yes men, that will tell it to me straight. This is not a mere difference of opinion. Apostles make mistakes too. Church leaders make mistakes too. What I love about the Bible 
showing us all these things. It's that much more credible to me. It's that much more believable to me when the Bible records all the oops moments of the apostles. In academic speak, they call it the criterion of embarrassment. Now, why would the gospel writers record things about themselves that were not flattering? Why would they say things that may, paint them in a bad light, make them look foolish, make them look sinful, make them look weak? I would submit to you the only reason they would do that because that is what was the truth. And they wanted you to know the truth. They wanted posterity to have the truth. And so they recorded even those ugly little bits about themselves. And here we have Paul recording an ugly little bit about Peter. We don't read about it in Acts. We read about him referring to that time in Galatia, or I'm sorry, in Antioch. But last week we talked about celebrity apostates, those who had walked away from their faith. How many more uh, times can we talk about celebrity pastors that we've unduly put on pedestals? I mean, I'm up pretty high right now, but um, you know what I'm talking about. We put them on pedestals and we, we think somehow they take some pill in the morning that keeps them from temptation. Let me tell you something. The truth is that they, they feel it more. Because they're not just responsible for themselves, they're responsible for all of you. I was talking to Tim this morning. He said, uh, we're going to talk about some hypocrites today. And he's always ready for a humdinger of a message. And, and uh, he wants his toes stepped on. Uh, but I, I like to say, before I step on your toes, I stepped all over mine. The Holy Spirit stepped all over my feet this week. We talk about hypocrisy, and it immediately comes to light as many times this week as I've fallen. I've failed. Some temptation got the better of me. I said something I didn't mean. I listen to something I shouldn't have allowed to enter into my mind. And I say, how dare you? You're going to speak in front of people and, and call them to account for their walk with God and yours is not right. I covet your prayers because of that. But we should not put leaders on pedestals. They're guaranteed to fall off of them. And I don't want you disappointed when it happens. Now, in the strength of in grace of, of God himself, I, I will do my best not just to let that happen. Uh, but we ought not put leaders on pedestals unduly. Celebrity pastors, I didn't look up how many. I've heard of just five or six that I followed and I really I liked. In the last couple of years that have fallen. But Peter stood condemned, and here's why, verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And again, I told you. Um, well, let me first say something about James here because I think if, I'm, if I don't point this out, it might become confusing to you that this is not saying James sent them. It is saying that they tried to claim the authority of James. They came from his general direction. And, and without, without, I'm certain without his authority, they, they came and spoke supposedly in his authority. If you read about the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, you'll see that, that James was definitely on the side of the decision that Paul was on to not make circumcision a thing that had to be added to grace in order to be saved. And so how could James be speaking out of both sides of his mouth? I'm certain that they did not have James' authority or blessing to do what they were doing, but they came from James. And this is all about Peter. He was eating with the Gentiles. Again, doesn't, it, it's impossible for our minds right now to wrap around how serious that was. That he would sit down to a meal with the Gentiles. 
All our Jewish lives, we care about this law, we try to uphold the law, we try to live according to the law. And now you're saying, since Acts chapter 10, his vision that preceded his meeting with Cornelius, you remember the sheet that dropped down from heaven, all the unclean animals, and he said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, No, not me, Lord. That stuff's unclean. I've never eaten any un- anything unclean. Not going to start now. He says it a couple more times, and eventually Peter gets it. This is a vision that precedes his time with Cornelius, the centurion. And he's going to find out that this message is not just for Jewish believers. This is to unite the entire world under one faith, one baptism. So Peter is in accordance with that. He's eating with these Gentiles. And I get it, again, I told you that uh, this is... Uh, the litmus test for how serious you were as a Jew. Would you eat with a Gentile or not? In, in modern uh, religiosity, you might think is, if somebody is so serious about their faith, they, they don't touch alcohol or they don't, they don't go to the movies. You might say, uh, well, that's legalistic. Yeah, right, exactly. The same thing is going on here. They, they will follow the law to the letter. The problem was Peter wasn't consistent. When they came from James, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So this wasn't a matter of, if your mind is tempted to wander to a Romans chapter, I think it's uh, 14. In that passage it says, we shouldn't do things that cause other people to be offended or stumble. And I wholeheartedly agree with Paul in that chapter. This is not what's going on. Peter's not worried about offending somebody, he's worrying about being caught. He's worried about his reputation, not for the right reasons. The difference between the two things is if I'm, if I'm fearful of being caught by these more legalistic people, I, I care about how they view me. That's a fear. Romans 14 drives us to out of love for one another, abstain from things that we're otherwise free to do. If you feel free to have a gl- glass of wine at dinner, Fine, but if you know your brother or sister is, is weaker in the faith and has to abstain from that, or for some reason they have a history with it, and they, they have to stay away from it for their, for their own conscience and for their own sake, out of love you avoid that thing so you don't bring them into stumbling. But the motivation is a key difference. You're motivated by love for each other, not by fear out of one another. Perfect love casts out fear. We should be motivated by that perfect love. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. The Greek word behind our English word hypocrisy refers to play acting, pretending. Uh, In the first century, uh, they didn't have a real developed system of makeup artists and and costumes and stuff. So when they had theater, they a lot of times would have masks, like a masquerade party. They just hold masks up. And and the the idea behind this is that it it fooled nobody. Uh, Nobody looked at the mask and said, oh, look at that so-and-so. They knew who was behind it. And so Peter's offense here is so obvious, as it's as if he's holding up a mask that nobody's fooled by. The deception is obvious. The pretense is obvious. The phoniness is obvious. You can hear the pain in Paul's voice when he says, even Barnabas, his companion on the first couple of missionary journeys, has been swept up in the charade, in the masquerade party. 
And think about this, if even Peter and Barnabas had been caught up in this charade, this pretending, this fake religiosity, what hope did any of those that followed them have? Hypocrisy has a communicative effect, especially when it's done by those in leadership. I want to suggest to you that what you do is amplified by those that follow you. What you do in your life is amplified by those that follow you. There's so many times I've been, uh, I've, I've been studying a certain topic or theme, whether it's a, a theologian or a, an atheist skeptic who's putting forth an argument that says there's no evidence for the existence of God. And I see the argument, I hear the argument, I understand the argument, and then I go watch their followers online. And with ten times the confidence and ten times the audacity and ten times the, 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 just the confidence in, in their argument, far more than the person who put, put, put forth the argument in the first place because their leader is doing it. The person they respect is doing it. They say, well, I can take it a step further. What we do is amplified by those that follow us. Your actions have consequences, especially parents, teachers, Leaders, preachers, pay heed to this. If you want to be in a leadership role in this church or any other, understand that you will be under a constant microscope. You'll be weighed in the balance, often found wanting, because you don't measure up to the pedestal that somebody had wrongly put you on. You've heard the expression what the parents do in moderation, the children do in excess. I have so many stories. Looking at you, Tyson. So many stories. I use him too too often as an, as an example, but usually it's good, buddy. But Tyson was so intense as a, as a young child, a baby. Even as a baby, he'd sit in his swing with a furrowed brow and this look of determination on his face. And I would tell him as, as early as he was able to understand me, Tyson, you are going to do great or terrible things. He had such an intensity about him. And then when he was old enough to understand, we'd be able to sit down and talk about it. He had this sort of, uh, a little bit of a temper, but, uh, but also this just intensity about him. And I said, you, the problem is, Tyson, that you are just like me. And I don't like everything about me. But the other problem is that I took 30 some years to get here. And you had eight or nine or ten already there. You know, I'm thankful that uh, he's got a great big heart. Um, and it's obvious to me that he is doing, uh, he's on the path toward the great, not the terrible things. And, and I appreciate his heart. But it's just one of those examples of what we do as people that follow us. What we do is amplified in those that follow us. What we do in moderation, our children, those that follow us will do in excess. We have to be careful about what we do. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You remember it was, uh, Judaism was like chapter 1 of the story, and Christianity chapter 2. And a lot of those that lived chapter 1 didn't want somebody else, the Gentiles walking in, skipping chapter 1 and going right to chapter 2. They said, no, you've got to pass through this Jewish stuff first. We had to go through circumcision. You should too. We had to abide by the dietary restrictions. You should too. And in Jesus, the answer to that was flat out no. 
You walk into the grace of Jesus Christ, whether you're here 30 years ago or just coming for the first time. When I saw their conduct, Paul saw something. We have an expression at work. I'm not real fond of it. Hopefully my bosses aren't watching. If you see something, say something. And what they mean by that is if you see something wrong, you see something that's unsafe or see something that isn't the way it should be, you need to report it to the people that can correct it. It needs to be corrected. People need to know about it. And so if you see something, you have a responsibility to say something. Paul saw something and he was going to say something immediately. They were not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is what he saw. They were not in line with, not in accordance with, not consistent with the truth of the gospel, namely the truth that made us all one people. The Jesus plus nothing gospel, the by grace through faith plus nothing gospel. That isn't fair. It isn't fair for those that spent all their lives following this ritualistic sort of list of, of do's and don'ts that then these second chapter people can just walk in and waltz. Didn't Jesus speak a parable about that? The vineyard, I believe. These people showed up at the last part of the day and he gave them the same wages as those that had been there all day and said, who are you? Get out of here. I'm the boss. And if I say they get all all the benefits of having been in this from the beginning, what is it to you? I'm the potter, you're the clay. Now if you know this about clay, but clay doesn't really have an opinion. It just lets the potter be free to do what the potter wants to do. And his sovereignty. And so before them all, Paul's going to call this thing out. Now, in the military, if you're familiar, you've been in the military, you kind of know there's a military courtesy. If one ranking individual is going to call out another ranking individual, they wouldn't do it in front of anybody. If Chris, being a, I think a sergeant first class or E7, whatever the Air Force is, E7 wanted to call me out in E5 and is in front of all my troops, he would probably, as a courtesy, as a professional courtesy, bring me aside and say, hey, Sergeant Whittem, I got some problems with what you just did. You need to straighten it up. Get in line. But Paul didn't do that because what he was observing was something done in public. The hypocrisy was public. And therefore the correction of it needed to be every bit as public, every bit as immediate. And it was immediate and it was effective. And last week we talked about our direct response to apostasy. And the risk of not being direct is that we allow the person, we even pat them on the back, send them on their merry way, off of the narrow path that leads to life and onto the broad path that leads to destruction. I, for one, don't want to be guilty. I don't want to stand before the judge of all the earth and say one day, yeah, I know, but I just wanted to salvage our relationship. I couldn't tell them the truth because I wanted them to like me more. You stand before Jesus, the the king, the judge, and have that to say? I don't want to be that guy. But here we have a direct response to a leader that's off course at risk of leading others down the same path. How often have Christian leaders been allowed to continue to go unchecked until they drag half a church with them? I I have one in mind. A church of 10,000 people. And the leader fell and fell hard. He had practiced little, little 
ways of being a, a dictator in this church. Nobody could question him. He had unchecked authority. And so when people started, saw him starting to slide, nobody stopped him. He's the boss. He's in charge. Ended up shattering a church of 10,000 people. I'm sure God is good. I'm sure they're going to find new homes. But what a sad story for the world to see that. It's all over the news. And they're waiting. The world is waiting for us to give them a reason to plaster it all over the front page. Yeah, but don't you, don't you follow a higher calling? Don't you, don't you tow a, a higher line? The answer is yes, we do. But we're fallible as heck. We're broken people. We're made in the image of God, but it's an effaced image. We are not yet what we will be. And so before them all, he calls it out. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you possibly force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Just a few words in, uh, in conclusion. I see a number of things in this text about Peter's character that would have led to that nasty H word, hypocrisy. And isn't that the number one reason people give us for why they're not here? Because that church is full of hypocrites. We saw my post on Facebook this morning. We're not full. We've got room for a couple more. And, and while that's funny, um, it, it is true. We are, the church is full of hypocrites. Um, trying not to be. Hypocrite, hypocrites who happen to be forgiven. Hypocrites who, because we, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus is awesome, we have a home in heaven, an eternal life to look forward to. But a few things I see in Peter's character. First of all, is subtlety. You've heard me mention this a number of times uh, before. But subtlety, not a Christian virtue. I, I imagine Peter kind of sitting back, and he's having a good time eat, eating at the same table as the Gentiles, but with one eye kind of fixed on the door. Watching out of the corner of his eye to see if anybody from James or Jerusalem comes in and makes him feel a little unsure of his position eating with Gentiles. Even though he knows, he had a visitation from God himself in a vision in Acts chapter 10, but it wasn't good enough. So Peter's watching out of the corner of his eye, being subtle, being crafty, being on his toes. Second thing is Peter operates out of fear. The only fear that should have any sort of impact on what we do is the fear of the Lord, which the Proverbs say is the beginning of wisdom. And if you can't wrap your mind around the fear of the Lord, um, you haven't pictured God as the Lion of Judah. I, I love the, the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy's character. If you're familiar with that story, Lucy's character asks uh, this talking family of beavers. They say, or she asks the question um, about Aslan the Lion, who's representative of the person and work of Christ in that story. And she says to Mrs. Beaver, she says, Mrs. Beaver, is, is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver laughs and says, he's a lion. Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And that makes all the difference.
We deserve death. And in that place, he's given us life. For us to largely ignore it week by week, day by day, not share it with anybody, and then act hypocritically, driving people further away. But it's his cowardice that led him to this, which is next is his inconsistency. He had a standard, but he had different standards. I guess any standard is worth doubling, right? Having a double standard. Nobody likes a double standard. But Peter acted one way with one crowd and another way with another crowd. You can probably relate to that. For many of my younger years, I did the same thing. Spent six years in the infantry in a recon platoon. A bunch of tough guys. The jokes, the abrasive language, took part in all of it. Every bit. To the shame of my Savior. And one day it occurred to me that I'm a different guy when I'm with my military buddies than I am when I'm at college, than I am when I'm at church. And I was getting so tired of juggling the personalities, I had to decide who I was in Christ. And that was the definition of who I was in Christ. That's the only definition that mattered. That's the only identity that mattered. And so from that point forward, I decided to cut the act, try to live consistently. But hypocrisy, which is ultimately what what Peter is guilty of, and those that followed him were guilty of, it comes at a cost. Some of us know this very well firsthand. First of all, you lose your voice. You lose your witness for Jesus when you act hypocritically. People, again, the world is waiting for us to trip up, and they're just going to, they got their index finger already extended, waiting to point it out. So we lose our voice for Jesus. We lose our reputation. It takes sometimes a lifetime to put together a reputation of any worth. And how long does it take to ruin it? Moments. That's all it takes is moments to ruin your reputation. And then try to build that back up up after you've ruined it. Not really easy. By God's grace, he He does restore us. And the church is supposed to be a place where people that fail can come back and be restored. Let's be a group that is waiting with open arms for the wayward son or daughter of God to come back. Allergies kind of bugging me. You guys, you guys too? Hypocrisy comes at a cost. We also we lose our voice, lose our reputation. Possibly lose our loved ones. How many of us have loved ones that have been driven away by our behavior from the church and because of us may never step foot back into, into a church? You know, I kid around about the hypocrisy and that's why people don't come to church, but it's a real thing. More than any other reason people give, people give hypocrisy. They name hypocrisy as the reason that they don't show up to church. And we have to wear that label. Because we're guilty as charged, like Peter was here. We don't just have standards, we have double standards. Now leaders especially, this comes at a cost. James chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Not many of you should be teachers. I feel the weight of that. 
Not many of you should step forward and say, I want to teach, I want to, I want to preach, I want to be in a position of leadership so that I'm doubly responsible for when I fall, if I fall. It's a heavy, heavy thing. There's so much joy wrapped up in it. For the weeks that I've been here, I can't drive into the parking lot without a, without a smile on my face, watching God just move along the way to bring us here, to be a part of this fellowship. But throughout the week, it's a heavy thing. And as I look at, as I study hypocrisy, all the things come to mind that I've been guilty of. I've been unfaithful at. I've neglected. The stakes are higher with those. That's why I wanted those of you who might aspire to be in a position of leadership here in this church to have your ears wide open today. The stakes are higher. It's not just your reputation, but people believe that you speak for God. And so they associate your hypocrisy with the name of Jesus. Now we, we know that one of the commandments is not take the Lord, name of the Lord your God in vain, but it's not just saying his name frivolously. It's also saying that we live for Jesus and then dragging that precious name through the mud all week long. I believe we should be transparent in our failings, but never hypocritical, never pretending, never faking it. In so doing, we will remove the biggest excuse people have for never setting foot in a church. So join me, if you would. And if you're a visitor this morning, if you're not somebody who believes in Jesus, you have not placed your trust and faith in Jesus, let me just speak directly to you. We are hypocrites. But we're following hard after Jesus. And so day by day, He's sanctifying us and making us more like Him. And so let's interlock hands as we walk that road together. And let Him chip away at the ugly parts of us. Let Him continue to sanctify us and make us more like Him in the process. I'm going to invite the worship team back up as I get ready to close in prayer and then we move on into communion. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the reminders in Scripture. Lord, that we don't live unto ourselves. We don't die unto ourselves. We have people watching us. We have young people looking up to us. We have a world out there pointing the finger at us, waiting for us to trip and to fall. And Lord, we don't want to drag your name through the mud. So we, we just pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us hearts to follow you. Give us hearts to pursue hard after you. And those, Lord, that are staying away from the church because of the hypocrites, Lord, might they be find in the church a place of healing. Realizing that they don't have to walk in these doors perfect because none of us are. But we worship the one that is. Father, I thank you for our time here this morning. Bless us as we move on into our communion time together. We pray these things. In your name, amen.